maybe it's got a 40 millimeter stem on it. I don't know. Or better, a better front tire that's not trying to kill me, but it's still an XC bike. Down country, XC bikes that don't want to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, and welcome back for another episode of the Pink Bike Podcast. So in the previous few shows, we've had some interviews, and we've definitely gotten a little touchy-feely in our motivation episode, but today we're going to point the good shit Pink Bike back towards the tech, because this show is all about the latest field test, specifically the downcountry bikes, the six downcountry bikes that Henry Quinney and I reviewed. Now, if you haven't seen all those field test review videos yet, I should warn you, there's definitely going to be some spoilers in this episode, but also a whole bunch more backstory, details, and information about how those six short travel bikes performed. So, to do this properly, I've got Mike Casimer and Alicia Leggett with us today, and they're hopefully going to be putting Henry and I on the spot with a bunch of hard questions about the bikes. So I've taken a bunch of questions that you guys have posted below some of the reviews as well, and we've included them. But first, Casimir, that was a hell of a time in Pemberton. This was our ninth field test, and I think you and I both agreed that it was probably our most enjoyable yet, despite the cold and wet weather. Do you think that's because we haven't been together for like a year and a half? Why do you think it was such a good field test, Kaz? It must be it. Those those big hugs every day. I think that was really what set it up apart from the rest. I saw your eyes got a little glazed over and they almost looked watery when we first saw each other at the house <laughs> <Yeah>. and embraced. It <laughs> was, was emotional. Rain. I think that was the rain. It rained a lot. Oh, okay. Yeah, it actually was rain. There was a lot <laughs> was, of fucking rain. It's weird yeah. how you guys parked your cars like 30 meters away just so you could actually run into each other's arms. I thought yeah. that was uh, nice yeah. yeah, it's important. We <laughs> should have filmed that in slow motion. <laughs> All right, we've also got Alicia here, as I've already said. Alicia, you drove up from Montana. You brought your paragliding gear with you, and we did a few shuttle runs so you could go flying. I think we were all pretty impressed with that. Is anyone out there doing paragliding group tests, or should that be Pink Bike's next thing? It could become Pink Bike's next thing. There are a couple of people who are much more qualified than I am doing paragliding reviews, but nothing quite like the field test. So there is there's there's room for the right? goofy videos that think bike is known for you have to come up with a good name for it i think so i think so what was the flying like was it was it good flying off the back of that mountain it wasn't super exciting it was pleasant and calm yeah. when the air is calm like that though in the fall there's not a ton going on so it was really just scenic and beautiful and more importantly it wasn't raining we had like three 20 minute encounters when it stopped raining and we got you up there you launched it was pretty awesome to see i've also got my fellow downcountryist here henry quinney henry how do you how do you think the field test went in general so far i think it, it, it's gone okay i mean i think it's hard because i think you know the downcountry thing everything is kind of steeped in irony right like yeah we're not there like this is a real movement we kind of know it's silly um, I think the videos have been fun. I mean, people haven't been getting all my dad jokes, which is really upsetting. Which dad jokes? There's a Liam Gallagher one about how he hates Blur. And everyone's like, who's the lead singer of Oasis? It's like, you know, Britain has been involved in many wars over the years. You know, uh, we've been we've had our fingers in just about every corner of the world doing all sorts of things. But probably the most culturally influential war was the Britpop wars of the 90s. You know, <laughs> lest we forget, you know, do you not teach us in schools over here? Oasis, Blur. It shaped, it shaped music, surely. Are the Beatles in there too? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, Blur didn't really come to the States. We got Oasis, but Blur was like left over across the channel. Yeah, oh, don't even start <laughs> that channel. Don't even start on that channel. It, I'm yeah, still I, it blew up, me man. away that you're from there and you've never heard it be called the channel. Okay. It's a tunnel Let- under the channel, hence it's the channel. Complete sense. We were having some wholesome board games. We are playing Trivial Pursuit. I could have won it. And it was like, what what countries does the channel join? I was like, what the fuck's the channel? <laughs> There's the English Channel Tunnel. Like, channel? What yeah. are you? Like, yeah. five? Channel. And we all knew it, except the one person that's actually from there and has gone under it. <laughs> I think I said, like, Canada and America or something. Yeah. We'll work on it. We can make a channel, too. Should we skip the news today, Kaz? Sure. There's no news in there. I forgot to Yeah, let's skip the news. Let's it's skip good. the news. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Because right. the news, we made the news with all the field test videos. This week's Pink Bike Podcast is presented by Ultimate Sports Engineering. When is a light more than just a light? Since Exposure Light's inception in 2004, its design ethos has been purely centered around elevating the rider experience. Now, Exposure Lights can offer front and rear lights for all terrain where, once switched on, the lights take care of the rider lumen needs automatically. Real rider benefits, the light does the thinking so you can fully concentrate on shredding the trail at maximum speed. All right, we're going to not waste any time today and get right into our chat about these six downcountry bikes that we had at the field test. And we should probably start off by reminding ourselves what they were. So these bikes were the Trek's top fuel. That's 120 millimeters on both ends. Canyon's kind of new Lux Trail. That's 110 millimeters for the rear with a 120 fork. The Niner Jet 9, that's a 120-130 bike. Rocky Mountain's all-new Element, that's a 120 with a 130 fork. The Santa Cruz Blur TR, 115-120. And that new Giant Trance Advanced with the Live Valve, that's 115 and 130 millimeters. Casimir and Alicia, you guys are in charge of this Q&A session, so what do you got for us? Well, we should probably start by just kind of talking about how you actually tested the bikes. You know, why don't you just go over the the loop that was the typical test loop so people kind of get an idea of where these bikes went. Because we were in Pemberton, and Pemberton has some super gnarly trails, uh, but the downcountry bikes didn't really go on the gnarly trails for a reason. We know that these bikes also aren't designed to be, you know, hitting the Pemberton road gap or, or train gap or anything. So we didn't jump any trains, but I saw Henry, Huck and Henry got his wheels off the ground a few times. I think Leap and Levy did too. Leap and Levy, he did some <laughs> by accident. Yeah. By accident. <laughs> he leaped in the bushes a few times. name on this podcast. <laughs> Leap and Levy. Too late. But yeah, Henry, take it away. So the downcountry field test started. I got to Pemberton. Kaz, you said, you've never been here before. Would you like to go for a gentle bicycle ride? And then you took me down some horrible wet stuff that was, I was on this trek and it was fine, but it was a bit, it was a bit keen. And then... From that moment forth, I just rode the same. It was like, it wasn't very long, like half an hour loop. And so basically, the loop was a figure of eight. So sometimes I'd boil it down to even just a 15 minute loop if I was just doing like back to back, getting my base settings. And then I'd go for longer runs to actually like test the bike. And I mean, we only rode that for like 10 days. And I rode it probably, I don't know how many times. I was probably doing average, I don't know, looking back or doing some like decent days of climbing, you know, but just only on this same half an hour loop and it was really good actually you know it, it's funny when you see bike reviews you know and obviously you have to you say things like fast yada 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 but what's lovely about this is we can say it is faster than this and it is more sure-footed than this and we can actually say it because we did back to back on the same track on the same conditions and um i mean it felt uh, just a bicycle rider and someone that loves riding bikes it was enormously satisfying kind of getting all these bikes set up and then once you have them to their optimum setup then comparing them on the same day that was so much fun yeah that the back-to-back thing is obviously it's the most important part of this testing process Kaz 
and Alicia and Henry, like we've all ridden lots of bikes, but when they're in isolation, it is more difficult to get that picture, like the whole picture. And I think what people want to hear a lot of times isn't just this bike was good. Like, guess what? It's 2022. All these freaking bikes are really good. We want to hear about how they compare. Like some of them might do some things different and it might be better and might be worse. But yeah, that back to back is is key, as we know. I guess as we, you know, when everybody showed up, a lot of these, some people have gotten some early laps on the bikes, but most of them were brand new bikes to all of us. When you guys were looking at the lineup, was there one in particular that you're getting excited to ride? How about you, Evie? Was there one you just said, that's got my name on it? I think it'd be the Rocky Mountain Element, to be honest, just because I've ridden a couple of them before and I'm so familiar with them. And, you know, they did the BC edition that was slacker, a little more traveled, a little more aggressive, all those things. But I mean... It always still felt like a pretty firm XC bike, where this is obviously an entirely other animal. We'll get into it, but I would definitely say that one. And then also the Santa Cruz, the Blur TR, no VPP. Um, it's their first go at like a real proper uh, non-VPP XC bike. And yeah, those two. For me, I had a little go on the Element, the basically pre-production bike for its first look. And basically it was actually one of the personal bikes, one of the test bikes from somebody at Rocky Mountain. And they had like 800 mil wide bars with, you know, how Ergon grips, they had like probably seven mil each end. So they're basically like 815 mil wide bars. And so it was a really weird bike to ride because there were some things it was so good at, but I just could never really get my fore and aft balance, balance right. But I was really excited to actually have one that I didn't feel bad about dropping down the handlebars. I could actually go give it a bit of thrashing. And, but that, that element, hey, what an interesting bike. It feels like, you know, people always say, not always say maybe, but there's a, obviously a curiosity within the bike bike market and, and a bike rider say just put the crazy angles on it just do it already like quit quit messing around you know pull your socks up put a 65 degree head angle on a short travel bike and what was amazing about that bike is for me you know it just felt like it's like an education quite frankly in not only how capable it could be but doing the back-to-back with some of the steeper bikes on the same track which was appropriate for the amount of travel and also it was highlighting some shortcomings as well and i'm somebody that's normally willfully progressive and i, I can't get bike slack and long enough and it was interesting that actually riding something like the Trek, I thought, oh, this is actually a bit steeper and it's actually very, very good as well. That element is so different than the previous elements. It's almost like they should have called it something different. Like it almost needs an entirely different name. Mm. It's so different compared to the previous ones. Maybe something cool like the Hellament or something like that. Like the Raisin Hellament. <laughs> right off the top of his head, everybody. Yeah, there we go. Ooh, thank the you, Rocky. Is that our title for the review? The Hellament? <laughs> We should. Yeah, we might have to change that. It's elementary, Watson. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's cool to see, too, that bike coming from Rocky, because Rocky, I mean, their reputation is they've always been a little bit conservative with their numbers. Like, that, that element has a 65-degree head angle, and so does the Altitude, which is their Enduro race bike that came out The Altitude like was too ago. steep. I know. Exactly. But it's nice to see that this bike comes out, and they're like, hey, we did it. Like, this is the bike that a lot of us have been asking for and wanted to see what it would be like, and they went ahead and did it, which is great. But isn't it? cool though that after like so many years it feels like of progressive geometry sort of settling a bit and people had no man like i think my, my biggest irk about the bike industry or the way bikes are marketed and people ra- market stuff as radical that just isn't and it just it just pisses me off and it gets my back up a bit but it feels almost like with these down country bikes it's like the it sounds a bit silly but it's like the age of delivery it's like they're not quite saying us it's crazy but it's actually got wild geometry you know, and they're not marketing it like, oh my God, this is just completely going to change the game. They're just like, it's a good bike. And it comes out and it's really great. And there were other bikes like that, like like the Trek, 
you know, like that Niner, actually, which was radical in its own way. And I think that's pretty cool. Like the canyon. Oh, no, wait. Uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that one for sure. The thing with that element, though, is that, I mean, if I wanted an XC race bike, I, I don't think I would pick that element. The element is no longer that XC race bike. I think, I mean, I wouldn't, if I'm breathing through the eye, my eyeballs and <gasps> dying, I don't think I would want to be on that particular bike. So I would just, I'm curious if they're going to have something different down the line or, yeah, I don't know. Here's a question, right? So, Levi, you looked at Santa Cruz because it was, and we talked about maybe putting a, like a slightly shorter stem or a riser bar on it. Yeah. Just to get your weight more rearward. I wonder how that element would ride with a slightly lock, if we just swap the cockpits around. Because yeah. that was the thing with the element is it felt amazing, but like so many things, they need they need the gradient to to get your weight sitting in the right place. Um, and it definitely for me it thrives on steeper trails, where something like the Santa Cruz of the Trek with the lower front end thrived on the flatter trails. And I wonder yeah. how simply you could tweak them. And we should also say that I mean we did a ton of climbing on the element, and it it is surprisingly not anywhere near being a handful. Like, it's crazy mm. what a steep, steep seat tube angle can do these days. Um, but I think in the heat of the moment, you know, an hour and a half into an hour 45 cross-country race, eh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I think it's interesting as well with, like, the consequence of having steeper seat tube angles on cross-country bikes are you need to then run longer drop, right, to get it out of the way. And so for some bikes that have weight, low weight as a premium, actually they need the slacker seat tube angle to keep their weight down in a way and i think it's quite it's such this holistic approach to bike design like if you want to run a 76 degree upward seat tube angle you need at least 170 mil a drop and that's when things start to get real heavy yeah i so, think we're um, just spoiled henry i think we are but i think that's a big reason why like bikes like the cross-country bikes don't want to have steep seat tube angles it's because yeah. it's just horrible to descend with it up your ass you guys have been talking a lot about these progressive sides of the spectrum what about the other end you had the Canyon and the Santa Cruz. They had much more traditional numbers than these other the Element and Niner. Does that make them worse? Does it make them better? Where do they fit into this downcountry world? Levi, you're far, far kinder than me, so why don't you take this one? Well, I think, so one thing that I felt from you, Henry, and actually I, I pick it up from you too, Casimir, is that these bikes, just because they might not be as sure-footed on the descents, Maybe they're shorter, maybe they're a little steeper, for whatever reasons, that doesn't automatically make them worse bikes. I don't think, like it would if we were reviewing like super aggressive trail bikes or enduro bikes, but I think in this category, we do have to be more open about where these bikes will be ridden and how they'll be ridden and who's going to be riding them too. And I think that, yeah, in this group, the Canyon, it didn't come off looking very good, did it? But... I think that, you know, in the right setting, that bike is great. It's probably a great bike. I, I, I would disagree that it's great. I think that that bike has some flaws that come from them just putting a new front triangle and the same back end on it. If you look at the geometry, yeah. like it has, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with steeper head angles. Like that's, I mean, as I'm with Henry, I love, you know, long and slack bikes, but there's a time and place. And yeah, you don't need a 62 degree head angle on an XC bike. But with the Canyon, what they've done, the front end gets so long. The seat tube gets so tall. Like we're on a size medium because they made the large too big and we're all around, you know, five foot yeah. 11. So I think that bike has more issues than just being too steep. You know, that's not the, that's not what's going on there. That's true. That's true. I think also, you know, one of the bits that sadly we couldn't put in the video just because it turned into a foul mouth rant from me 
was about the flat mount brake caliper on the rear. It's there's nothing wrong with making something steeper, like Kaz said, or with other anything other than descending in mind. But having what is predominantly a road bike standard and solely there for lightweight on the back of a 120 mil bike is to me it just seems willfully naive. I'm gonna be honest with you. I couldn't understand it. And it felt like it's actually gonna limit your options because you can't just change the brakes. You you're then limited by what calipers you can source and it seemed half assed to me. I I wasn't overly impressed with it. Yeah, I, I do think that is somebody definitely dropped the ball there. I don't think that a ton of Lux riders are gonna be overly concerned with that, but I definitely think they should be concerned with that seat tube length and the effective top tube length. I think those are two much, much more important details. Well, the thing that frustrated me about the Lux Trail was this isn't the Lux. So we talk about it like, oh, the people that would sort suit the Lux Trail would be the people that don't want to do anything crazy and they just want a full suspension mountain bike that's comfortable for all day riding. Why wouldn't they get the standard Lux? What are they trying to do differently with the Lux Trail that they've, they've done? Because the whole time we're saying, but this isn't a bike for descending. This is a bike for just not like people that aren't focused really on like, you know, smashing out runs. And that's fine. And I'm really, those people need to be catered for because they're just as much a mountain biker as I am. You know, they, 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 they need to get their perfect bike, right? But what was the point in doing something, a slightly different shade of beige? So it'd be like, you know, Mike Levy, we're driving along and like, oh my God, can you, um, I don't want to listen to any more Coldplay. And you go, that's okay. I've got some Maroon 5 or Imagine Dragons. What do you fancy? Be How like, did you what? know? <laughs> what? No, like, give me something different, you know? Yeah. I, yeah, I understand. I understand what you're saying there. I just felt like, I sort of felt like you guys, though, penalized. So let's move on to the Santa Cruz for a second. I felt like that bike got penalized more from you guys because, yeah, I mean, it's not as sure-footed and you can't go as fast on the descents. But that's not really... That's not what they set out to do. Yeah, but that's completely fine. But the Santa Cruz, at least, it comes back to you. Like, I was pretty damning in some of the things I said about the Santa Cruz in terms of its descending capability. And we talked about that, you know, that you actually liked the kind of the more alive feeling. And I, I'm someone that prefers something more stable. And that's completely fine. I'm happy to say, you know what? Like, that is completely personal preference. And who am I to say? However, with the Santa Cruz, at least it comes back to you in other places. And the things it aims to be good at, it is good at. It's light, it's grippy, it's comfortable. Those three things, I couldn't, honestly, I couldn't level at the canyon and feel that I, I feel confident in those assertions. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah, like I, for me, the bike that, like if I had a blur, it'd be fun. It would be like your XC super light sprint around bike, but then the you could make it however you want. But I think there's more more room for comfort on the blur where the canyon is just kind of stuck in its spot. It, it tried to do one, it tried to go one way and it didn't work. And yeah, where the blur, I think the blur is, kind of like your definition of downcountry lever where it really is just an xc bike that's been you know made a little more sporty which makes a lot of sense for a lot of people that's the one bike that i do see makes sense for a bunch of people in different terrain yeah i'd agree with that too i think if you were going to keep one of these bikes for three or four years and upgrade a bunch of stuff i think that the ceiling of the blurs capabilities is a hell of a lot higher than the canyon i think we could all agree on that but isn't the blur such a the thing with the blur is that it felt to me like, I mean, you, you hit it one, you know, talking about versatility. It's it's actually a versatile bike. It might not be versatile in terms of it moving up the spectrum to getting more and more aggressive descents, but it's versatile in the sense that it's very, very, very good at climbing. So it goes the other way. And versatility, the whole point of it is that it's it's a spectrum, right? And it can go both ways. So actually, that's what I think the Blur does 
it could be an XC race bike. It could be a marathon bike. Um, and I think that's how it actually, to me, it really goes up in my estimations of, of, of what it's worth. Let's let's move on to the other end of the spectrum a little bit. So these we just talked about the two bikes that would I you know put them on the pointier little maybe twitchy end of the side of things. But let's go to that Niner. That was a bike that really it's more of a short travel trail bike than a downcountry bike, even though it fit our kind of made up criteria. You know, it has 120 mils of travel front and rear, um, which is kind of our main criteria. So it, it it does fall into this category. But after you guys rode it, it there were some things that made it not really. Uh, it, it didn't stand out as much as I thought it would. Cause you look at, it, it's got that little piggyback shock kind of high rise bars. Like, Oh, they're going to love it on the, in Pemberton. It's gonna be amazing. But then everyone came back. It's kind of like, ah, it works well, but nobody was, you know, just absolutely floored by it. Why do you think that was for me? It's because it didn't do anything. It didn't have any like super outstanding qualities. I, I kind of actually feel bad for Niner because on its own, I think that bike on its own, great bike. Um, but in this group, all of these bikes had sort of like just more decisiveness to them. You know, they had more uh, like it's obvious what the Canyon and the Santa Cruz were for. It's obvious what the Rockies for and it's obvious what the Trek is for. And like it is obvious what the what the Niners for too. It's a freaking it's a trail bike or whatever it is, you know. But when I was riding it, it all just kind of seemed to blend together. Henry, is that out of line? Yeah. I think for me, there were, with, with the, the Niner, I mean, I would agree with everything you said. The problem with the Niner is not anything that, it's, it's not the Niner's, it's not the Niner's fault. But the problem with the Niner is the way that we categorise bikes is, it just shows that travel is just is just one way to categorise them. But actually, and it, it's often the easiest way, right? 120 more travel, 130, 150, we know what we're getting. But the Niner, it feels like it's a 120 more bike that's best suited at doing things that 140 150 mil bike should do and that makes it worse at being 120 mil bike even though it's more even though it's better at descending do you know what i mean yeah it's a great bike great bike yeah it's kind of yeah it falls into that jack of all trades master of none category where it's like oh yeah it'll do it all but then you have the blur where you're like oh i want to go climb on this bike or the element which is like i want to see what i can get away with going down the hill on this bike where the niner it's kind of like i'll get away with this it'll be fine when you're on the niner henry you don't just want to pedal damn it Oh, Levy. Don't That's even. unfortunate. <laughs> don't you? I mean, honestly, man, like, I, it's it's an, it's silly because I don't know why. I, it's under the lacquer, that pedal damn it saying, and it just looks cheesy. Yeah. But the thing with the Niner, and without going into that too much, because basically I will, I'm, I'm trying to keep it calm because at the time when we talked about this last, I wasn't that calm and I, I got a bit into it because I don't really want any motivational, inspirational sayings. on my. You know, I had some grips the other day that just said, except no limitations. And I was like, it's a fucking grip. They're all basically <laughs> yeah. the same, except no li- What are you talking about? I'm limited like, by my grips. It just reminds me of the guy, if you've, <laughs> if, you've ever, if you've ever been in a bike shop, right, you will know the guy that walks around proud as punch in his Team Sky t-shirt, just, oh, like, tottering about the place. And it's just, it, it's, it's too much. But Have you seen me in Corsa? Like, Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. We used to have a recumbent rider come in that had the polka dot jersey. And that was the best because he had like a big beer belly. Oh, and he would just sit in. Like. But then he's wearing like the super skin tight polka dot jersey. I'm like, yeah, that guy's got it going on. <laughs> I mean, I, well, yeah. It just, it, to me, it is li- the live, laugh, love of, of bikes, you know. But, you know, interesting enough, coming back to the Niner and actually how it rides, the thing that struck me, and I think the thing that obviously it pedaled really well, but it also it, it required a lot of breakaway forces to get it into the stroke on the shock quite, which it compromised grip. 
I know that it wouldn't be a good candidate, but in some ways it'd be at least an interesting candidate to have a coil shock on there. I know it'd be stupid to make it heavy, but I think that would actually really cover off a lot of the base in terms of grip that we found that it didn't quite do. I think that it's dumb that it had a piggyback shock on there. It's a 120 mm. millimeter like trail bike and... I, th- I think that piggyback shock on there, honestly, is just for it to look more aggressive, to be honest with you. Levy, do you remember the Norco Optic? Yes. Do you remember liking that bike? Yes. Yeah. Did that have a piggyback shock on it? I can't remember. <laughs> I think the answer <laughs> the is The way yes. that you're asking, though, I <laughs> it think it like does. like a trap. I was but like, Levy, get out of it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, where's he going with this? The piggyback shock doesn't mean a bike is going to descend better. Like we talked about this a couple of podcasts ago. It, it means that it might be more consistent if the descent is super long. If you've got, you know, three, four thousand foot descents. Wouldn't that be better? But I feel like it. Yeah. Technically. <laughs> yeah. Not technically if you're never going to do that, though. True. It's yeah. like buying yeah, exactly. an off-road truck when you don't drive off-road. Like It's just more weight. It looks cool. Can I say, living in Squamish, I'm completely completely unfamiliar with the idea of people buying big off-road trucks they never take off-road that's alien to me <laughs> i can't think of any examples i don't even no, I don't come even to the americas that, henry <laughs> we can move on now you guys have mentioned every single bike except for one this feels a bit like an elephant in the room henry you had some strong words i think we should talk about live valve i honestly man oh heavens heavens the shit storm the shit storm is sweeping us all up um i Okay, I'm not a technophobe, right? For those, I don't want to basically ruin the magic of cinema for anyone, but it helps if we approach things and there's a bit of confrontation. So, Levy played the, yeah, technology, and I play the, ah, technology. Now, I'm not someone that is like, that deserves no place on my bike. I mean, I had DI2 back in 2017, 2016 maybe, and thought it was fantastic. You know, I had the first generation wireless road drivetrain, I, you know, I'm not a tech but if it's going to be radically different, then it has to be significantly better. And that's what it comes down to. So I'm not a technophobe, I'm te- techno-sceptic. And that live valve is radically different, but at best, at best, it could be described as just having different blind spots than normal drivetrain, but not being necessarily better. Henry, you don't think that that live valve used in a different place by different riders would be better suited to them and those riders would be happier than we were? I mean, there, there's every chance and I'm, I'm very open to that. But the problem is that for me, I don't know, I would never want to seem like, you know, too hard-nosed that like, I know best and I know right, but I can only review what's in front of me and I can only compare it to the other bikes we have on test. Now, that bike was doing, what I found, strange things on some, you know, and so it's difficult. Am I a technophobe? Or am I biased if I don't talk about it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, my, it's my obligation to go into that with an open mind, which I did. I, I know we talked about it, but I did go into it with an open mind. And actually, you know, and I, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know what I can say. It didn't do what I wanted it to do. So Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's, that's all we could say, really. I know there was some, there were some angry people in the comments and people frustrated with Live Valve frustrated that we got a live valve bike actually that's another thing that we should say we didn't we didn't reach out to giant and say hey giant please send us a new bike with live valve you know the first time we reviewed live valve we did not really like it at the last field test you know but we got this bike in it's the one they sent i would agree i mean for the trouble that it adds to that bike all of those wires everywhere 
all of those zip ties, like the packaging is almost unacceptable, if you ask me. Um, and when we were riding it, it didn't really, I think I got on better with you, but yeah, I mean, it, it t- didn't really overly impress me. That's for sure. You know, I think for everything the live valve is good at, it just, you know, that bike, it grips so well on climbs. But it's so heavy, it was our slowest technical climb. You know, it was only two seconds faster compared to fully open. And that's not fully open like, you know, riding a normal shock. That's pretty much, I felt anyway that in fully open, it really had very little compression damping with that. You know, turning the system off on a live valve shock, I feel, is more open than just running a normal shock in its open position, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so all of this for two seconds. Yeah. You know, yeah. It can you boil down? Can you boil down how it felt on the trail for you? Tell us. Tell us what you didn't like. You know. So basically, I felt that what was happening. So I put on. So basically, there were different settings on live valve. Right. You can have sport, comfort, commute. I don't know what commute is. Um, I don't know if you meant to have like yeah, bags full of ice cream and groceries swinging off the bars, and maybe it comes alive then. But yeah, I don't know what commute means. And you also have climb mode as well as open. So open is basically just a setup. Now climb mode, it states in the app, is basically has a open fork for anything pointing uphill. On flat and descending terrain, it then um, adds loads of compression adjustment, right? Now this is great. So the shock firms up on climbs, fork dips into its stroke, fantastic climb, it really poised loads of grip. The thing I found with it was on the descents, they... Maybe maybe it's simply a copywriting issue in the app because it said that it behaves the same as sport mode on flat trails or descents. But for me, it didn't. There was a discrepancy with how the, the compression damping on the shock and the compression damping on the fork, and it seemed to um, alternate at will. So what would happen is, as you loaded up the bike, so say if you were really um, putting a lot of force straight, you know, you dipped your heels and you put your force directly through the bike going forward under heavy braking perhaps... What would happen is it felt like the rear shock was firming up more and it was sending weight into my hands. Basically, I was, I was pivoting around the bottom bracket, as, as you can imagine, like just like a big a big lever of my body weight, just going around the BB and into the handlebars. And that only came about always downhill. It's not like I was, you know, going uphill at any point, but it was always on like the second turn. It felt like the first load it could take, but then as you unweighted the bike and went into a second turn, like the shock would just go fully open and the, and I would just pack down in the fork and it would then make basically have to like a press up out of it on the exit of turns. This wouldn't happen all the time. It was only when you're pushing really hard. But I think therein lies the blind spot in that it's really confidence inspiring until suddenly it, it isn't. And that to me, I'd almost like it yeah. prefer more consistency rather than great until it wasn't. Yeah, I was just going to say consistency is what you want. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I don't understand... Sorry to go off on on one, but this is maybe it might might be me showing that perhaps I am entrenched in my views, although although I hope I'm not. But I'm so impressed with how well hydraulic damping works on suspension. Just I know we've got this latching solenoid that changes, but you ride like a grip two damper, which manages to isolate low and high speed compression circuits, which is a fox thing, you know, fair play to them. They're doing this mag- magnificently well, and um, and I just think it works so well. I don't know what to say. I just, I think it works really, really well. And I haven't, the live valve to me didn't present a significantly strong enough argument to say that we're ready to move away from that yet. 
Yeah, I think especially on these shorter travel bikes, you know, I do, I can see the argument more for the longer travel bikes having some kind of electronically controlled suspension. Like I get it, but when you get 120, 115 mils of travel, it's, they usually pedal pretty well. You know, like there's not too many that you hop on, you're like, oh, I wish this was firmer. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like that little package, it should be able to make it, you know, if it's a little firmer, that's fine. You kind of deal with that. But having, yeah, I just, I'm in the same boat as you, Henry. It seems a little confusing to put all this effort into this thing that ends up being heavier and more complicated. But, you know, I think something, you know, we talk about pedaling and I think that's a really interesting point because people all have different pedaling styles, right? And they set up their bikes in different ways. So I'm someone that typically runs a very high spring rate in my rear shock and I spin a very high cadence. So I neither have, I don't normally feel that any bike really has that much pedal bob, you know? Um, And so I wonder if the way that I set up my bikes is different to someone that's maybe more of a beginner who wants a lot more comfort, who doesn't kind of doesn't ride the same trails that have such high load greens the rear shock and they pedal more, something more like a square basically i wonder if it'd be better then we should also say that we did use manufacturers suggested spring rates yes. sag settings for testing these yeah. bikes just as just as a side notice Henry, henry's not out there with zero percent sag saying all oh, these bikes pedal well <laughs> and need live valve <laughs> that's me yeah, yeah. <laughs> We did run when we were there, when we were there. I don't know if you were with me, Henry. We were pedaling up the hill, and we came across this group, and they were in front of us. We just kind of waited a little bit and just soft pedaled behind them. And watching the pedaling style of one of those the people in the group it was amazing to see how different it is. Like his, he was almost bouncing with every pedal stroke, and that guy would be a prime candidate for live valve. Like he was pedaling. If there's something that's more square than a square, that's the shape he was making. It was it was pretty wild to watch. Like. He was fully almost rise out of the seat and then just like plunge back into it. And you could just see his suspension just going so deep. And like, I mean, you know, that's just his style. Like that's how it works. But for him, live valve could be a game changer. He probably had 50% sag. That's probably part of that's what it looked like. Yeah. I mean, he probably could have benefited from some shock setup and things, but you know, that's not, not everybody tinkers and messes around with stuff as much as we do. And we, we kind of take for granted that we get our stuff set up and it's fine, but some people need a little extra assistance. Yeah, I mean, I think with, with, with that live up, I mean, you're totally right. I think that's definitely the sort of candidate that does suit it. But why? I mean, the giant trance, I think, if anything, the, to me, it felt like the trance was the thing that was caught in the crossfire, right? Because people don't really want to hear me reviewing electronic suspension when they look up their giant trance review. And it actually had the foundations of a lot of good geometry. It was actually, I don't think, totally dissimilar to the Niner in the way it was positioned. And, um, you know, like... I, 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 you know, in, in all the things I thought about, I was going to talk about today. I didn't really factor in live valve because I'm so. To me, I'm so. Um, what would be the word? Kind of done with it. Like I just want to say, say the Giant was actually a really good bike, and th- this is a good bike. But, like, yeah. Sorry to people that wanted a good Giant Trans review, but we didn't. We didn't want the live valve either, for what it's worth. I, I, th- I think Henry and Kaz might disagree with me, but I think that. It is going somewhere, just like flight attendant is going somewhere. And I think that if I think if bikes are designed around live valve or flight attendant or those sorts of things, I think we will see much more performance out of them. Um, and to be fair to Fox, this wasn't an entirely new live valve. It's the same similar system, just revised a bit. But I think there's potential there. Henry, like, do you see a world where there could be some live valving? Um, how, how honest would you like me to be, Michael? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Casimir, do you see a world? (laughs) I mean, I don't, I see a world where it gets better. I just don't know one where it 
is totally necessary, especially for the short travel bikes. I do think that the longer travel bikes, it, it's kind of an interesting proposition. I know I heard the, um, I think Chris Kokalis in a podcast or something was talking about the concept of making a bike with super low compression damping and then letting live valve compensate for that on the climbs. I think that kind of experimentation is interesting, but again, these short travel bikes, they already work so well without any electronics or batteries or anything. That's like, like, I'm totally happy with how they work now. It's not like something needs to be fixed where, you know, maybe a few years ago, that might've been more of the case. So yeah, always interesting to see where it goes, but I think for now it still hasn't been like, this is what we need to be seeing on all bikes, but let's move away from electronics and talk about regular things without any batteries. But we also haven't talked about the top fuel too much. I think we maybe briefly mentioned it, but I want to bring it into the one comparison that we keep getting asked a lot. We've had more than a, I don't know, probably a half dozen questions at least. People want to know the comparison to the transition spur and also that stump jumper. So those are two bikes from the, the tra- last. The transition spur. The transition spire? Uh, no, the spire is the bike that you think is a cross country bike that is the not. Spire? Yeah. So the but best thing about funny the enough, actually, on this note, no, on this note, so I got efficient. a good, I have a good point. Before we go into the spire, Henry. It turns out mm-hmm. that if you take the Rocky Mountain Elements head tube angle and extrapolate it, if you put a 170 fork on the Rocky Mountain Element, that would have the same head tube angle as your Spire. Well, that's why it's so good, clearly. Exactly. Um, yep. <laughs> I also just want to say, we now we know why Henry always goes on about how the Spire pedals so well, because it has 0% sag. It's super <laughs> it, it yeah. all makes sense now. <laughs> I actually just put a cinder block in there yeah, a while ago. That's great. <laughs> No, but I do want to go into this comparison and we'll probably be like, it's probably halfway in the podcast. So let's make people actually find this little spot because this is the, the hidden gem in the middle. People want to know this comparison. Let's go. We know the spur and then the stump jumper, top fuel and element. Those four bikes have nearly identical geometry. The stump jumper has more travel. It has 130, 140, but head angles, reach numbers, seat tube angle, chain seat length are within two mils each, but they don't ride the same. No, they definitely no. don't. Yeah. So... I guess I think the, the question people want to know is which one's better. I don't think we can answer that. Do, do either of you think one of those is the best? I think it's the Spire. Four? Spire? <laughs> yeah. We, we're going to be on this fucking show here. <laughs> I, uh, so let's talk about the Specialized first. The Stumpy's definitely the most forgiving of the bunch. Um, I felt like I'm trying to think back. You know, it's been a while since I've ridden yeah. all these bikes, but yeah, so something has more travel too. So remember, it's 130 yeah. or 40. So that does give it that more like that really is a trail bike. Yeah, and it does have that more trail bike feel to it. Where those other three bikes, they're definitely more lively. You know, like on the edge. I think, dude. Like I, I think I need to take the spur and the element back out and ride them back to back. The element blew me away. And I remember the spur blowing me away as well and in the same way. And yeah, I think I just have to compare them more. So, sorry, can I just jump in here? Just yeah. for people that haven't, because a lot of people maybe just had, they got their one enduro bike, right? Maybe they got a downhill bike. Can we just clarify what we mean when we say trail bikey? Which sounds ridiculous to say, but what 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 exactly we what what we suggesting compared trail to? Trail biking is like cross country riding. Yeah, it's cr- trail biking is like cross country riding without spandex. I mean, basically, it's that genre that falls in between. It's like a 130 mil bike to a but one. How does it manifest in the in the way the bike rides? So for me, it's a slightly higher front end, which basically means that, yeah, on steeper terrain, it's, it's a bit better. It also means that like a, a, a lower front end is good on flatter terrain because it keeps your, wheel, your weight more centered between the wheels so it makes turning easier. 
you know what I mean? How, how, how do you define trail biking or trail bikey geometry? When I say trail bike, I think what I mean is it's made for essentially 50-50 uphill versus downhill. It starts to go into aggressive trail and enduro when you're talking like 60-40 descending. And it's definitely a cross-country bike if it's biased toward uphill. But in that 50-50 range is trail bike. And if a bike starts to feel equally comfortable on the ups and downs, I'd call it a trail bike. See, I think that is such a great way to phrase it. I did see something that did make me laugh hysterically at home in that Brian, good old Brian, jumped on a grenade in the comments and said something like that, right? Yeah, it's 60-40. And everyone was saying, yeah, but if you go on a bike ride, you do the most amount of climbing as you do descending. <laughs> it's hard to go on a 60-40 like, ride. No, you end up 20% it's, left. <laughs> it's not saying that you don't do the same amount. Like, yeah. I keep ending up in the sea. <laughs> it's not necessarily about what you ride, but it's about how you feel when you ride it. You know, like, <laughs> if it feels equally good those places then it's trail bike and we do kind of know these categories are, are kind of silly to begin with but it does come down to how a bike feels and that's a hard thing to put into you know this bike feels more of this than this so you can kind of start by looking at the numbers and then sort them out into categories and spreadsheets and things if you felt like it but, but we still haven't answered the question we're trying to decide what's the better bike between these four it's the one everyone wants to know yeah i right now i would grab the element just because it's the last bike that i rode it's the last bike that impressed me. It's um, literally right behind you, right? It's, that- yeah, it's literally right <laughs> behind me on the bike rack on the stand here. But, I mean, I got to ride that Spurg. I think they're both amazing bikes. They're both kind of meant to do the same things. I think that Rocky, in hindsight, it maybe feels a little more active and forgiving on the suspension front. Uh, but, yeah, I got to ride them back to back and see. Yeah. I think that Top Fuel, I was interested. To, I rode the Top Fuel. I didn't... I was testing the aggressive trail bikes during this, so I didn't ride all of the downcountry bikes, but I did sneak away on that top fuel for a ride. And that one had more of a, I think that one pedals better than the spur. Like the top fuel has a little bit more get up and go. It feels a little more efficient. The shock tune is a little bit more firm, but then on the flip side, I kind of like how the spur has that sort of softer, more compliant ride where you can kind of get in the chattery stuff and just let it go. And it kind of finds its own way. Mm Mm-hmm. Which one would you buy if you were only going to own one bike in the Pacific Northwest, Kaz? That's a hard one. I think it'd be for me. It'd be between the Spur and the Element. Also, uh, they both kind of hit that same mm-hmm. same target. And again, the geometry is almost the same. I think some of it would come down to components. Like my my current Spur, I own a Spur for people that don't know, but I have mine set up exactly the way I want. Like it has code brakes, it has a forty mil rise bar, and so it's like it's dialed exactly for me. So I think I'd stick with the spur because the element doesn't really bring much to the table that that doesn't have, except I think probably a lighter frame weight, but they're pretty close. Some adjustability. Yeah. But I just, I don't need the adjustability. Yeah. yeah. What, would I, what would I change it? Like a half degree here or there is like, it, it's a difference, but it's not like each ride. Like, Oh, I'm going to go on a little steeper ride. I'm going to switch my ride for like, yeah. The element could hold more bottles. Take that. That's Kaz. true. It, it, well, no. Cause the, I could put one in the GRD catching zone. I think there's one underneath the spur. I've never used it, obviously, but I think there's one on the underside of the down tube. So yeah. then they're even. That, that one but I would just catch GRD. Yeah. I know. Yeah. But yeah, you, you went in the bottle department. <laughs> they're so similar. I mean, it's good because I think there's a reason they're all ending up around these similar geometry numbers because they work really, really well. They just feel right. I guess the top fuel does have a swap or top fuel has a little snack compartment. I know that everyone, I'm saying things that are definitely wrong here. And the internet should should be angry at me, and I, I, I'll, I'll accept it. 
I'd like to see these bikes shorter in terms of reach. There, I said it. Same seat jib angle, same head angle, 10mm shorter. I think 470 reach would just be absolutely fine on the descents. And I think they would, especially the top fuel, I know I keep talking about it, but weighting the front axle, I had to slam the saddle forward on its rails. Not because of the, just it's just for a weight thing, just to try and weight the front axle more when it got steep or slightly techy or tighter. I definitely know where you're going. I think that doesn't not make sense, Henry. But at the same time, I feel like these bikes, when you get these bikes that have relatively small amounts of travel, that extra length, that extra wheelbase, that extra front center, I think that could be super helpful when you're you're trying to ride your 120 bike with your asshole friends on their 150 bikes who are going way faster in yeah, places that you shouldn't be. It's still got a 65 degree head angle. Yeah, it does. Yeah. But do you, do you think the element... is still mightily long reach. You know, something like the Nukeproof Mega a couple of years ago, one of the fantastically well handling bike that had a 470 mil reach no it's still it's a lot it's enough yeah, <laughs> yeah. well it also had 450 mil chain stays that's where stop we need to go with facts <laughs> stop, stop i had to make i like that with facts yeah. no, i mean i think there's room i don't know what was the stem length on that top fuel henry do you know it was built in uh, 45 thing. mil yeah so that's pretty that's pretty good so i mean i wouldn't disagree i think five mils would be fine if they went shorter but i haven't found that they feel too long for me but again it's, it's personal preference mm. and I think specialized, their yeah. bikes tend to be a bit shorter. So I think they're usually like 470, 475, when other ones are 480. So that's kind of where people can kind of look at geometry charts and say, oh, this one's going to fit a little bit shorter than the other ones. All right, let's get into some questions from the commenters. We've grabbed a whole bunch of questions and comments from underneath reviews. And now Kazmer and Alicia are going to ask us. Alicia, what do you got for us? Yeah, so someone named with dignity, if not alacrity says that he found Henry's comment about bikes being too long to be really interesting. And he's curious what your take is on companies like Trek who do smaller size splits. Trek, for example, has the medium-large size, and this guy says he's 5'10", which is right around many of our height, and he prefers a reach at 465. What's your take on that? I mean, I think we should really pub- try not to publicize me criticizing progressive geometry too, too much, because big bike will put a hit out on my head. And like, you think I'll that's be not already for. the case. No, I mean, I, I've been tailed for, by a guy for the last week. Yeah, that's Chris Porter. <laughs> He's chasing you around. <laughs> you know, um, and I think it's it's very true. I mean, I think the way that you size bikes could it depends on much stock in, you put into it. Either that you know the the notions of like large, medium, small are completely arbitrary, or they're very important. I probably put myself in the latter category i think actually having bikes that sit within appropriate range is actually really really useful because we come from a, from a place that we look at geometry charts but like when i went to get skis of the week i don't i don't know i just asked the nice salesperson what should i get and then they tell me and i'm having to go off my own bit you know they're saying oh so you want this big or this big and i'm just like i'm a, I'm a complete beginner i just want to go off what the sticker tells me you know and i think that typically people around 5 10 5 11 and we've got two of them you know here i don't know do you guys ever feel that sometimes in between sizes going between the medium and the large because i can and i'm six foot so i'm maybe more in the in the range yeah i would say it's definitely especially now that bikes are starting to get longer and companies some of them want to hop on that longer is better trend the next years comes out and you look at the chart again like, oh i actually could probably be on a medium it's getting close i'd say i found for myself uh, for reach 490 is about my limit that I don't like to go much longer than that. Even that's a little bit on the long side, but uh, to go with a non-down country bike, like Canyon just came out with that torque. And so I've got a size large torque in for review and that's a 590 or sorry, it's a 490 reach. But if I was to go with a medium, it's 465. 
So that's a pretty big difference. And I do think that this, um, this commenter's point about having like an ML is pretty nice. It's a great one. The thing is it costs money for these companies to open up a new frame mold. So not everybody has the, not everyone has the resources of a company like Trek that can have seven different sizes. You know, I get where companies just have four sizes. And so there has to be a line drawn somewhere, but, but yeah, it totally happens where some of us, um, get, end up in between size and you have to decide which one to go with. So I like more sizes, the more size, the better, but obviously it's not always possible. The upside to all these different sizes too, is you, you can choose a size that works for you. Like specialized does with their S sizing, um, where, I mean, if you're a five ten, like maybe you could choose a four eighty, or maybe you could choose a four sixty or a four sixty five, and neither of those are are wrong, but they affect the wheelbase and they obviously affect how the bike's going to handle and the bike's personality, and that lets you, yeah, it lets you choose. It puts the power in your hands. You're not just on a large with an eighteen inch long seat tube, which is great. I, I agree. I mean, I think that what I think is really cool about some of these modern enduro bikes is they're coming with that one point five inch head tube and you can have 10 mil reach adjusted via a headset mm-hmm. um and i think that's really useful like i said for, i'm i'm typically like very like normally i've in my experience anyway a largest range goes between 510 and six foot two so i'm like slap bang in the middle but what's interesting like with that canyon suddenly that was the first bike in a long time that i didn't fit on a large if there was ever there was a candidate for maybe a medium size between the two that that could have well been it oh here's, here's an interesting one this is from feldy bikes he wants to know when we talk about the field test, how does being sponsored by bond tracker and one of the bikes is a track work. Okay. So he's asking, he says he doesn't want to sound like a troll. He thinks we've done a good job, but he just kind of wants to know how this works. So, um, I can take this one. So we have different sponsors for the field test. They help us, uh, out with equipment, that type of thing. So this one, we had our shoes and helmets were supplied by bond tracker. And it also does happen that we did have a Trek in the mix. So we had that Trek top fuel for those that don't know bond tracker and Trek, same company. Um, that doesn't influence the review at all that, you know, it's, we're transparent about it and that stuff happens with the advertising side of pink bike and none of us are involved in the advertising department. So we don't even really have any involvement. The only emails that go back and forth are what size shoes do you guys need and what size helmets do you need? And that's it. And then they show up and then we ride the bikes and say whatever we want about them. So. I think also if anyone saw me in one of those Bontrager helmets, you'd have to question whether it was an advert at all. Um, I look like a Victorian policeman. <laughs> I will say the shoes are badass, though. I do like the shoes. Yeah, helmet's not as comfy, but the shoes the shoes are nice. Um, the helmet actually fits sponsored. my head pretty well. So, <laughs> I have the proper field size, yeah. field test sized head, apparently. Yeah, there <laughs> you go. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it, it's kind of one of those things with anything on on pink bike. There are plenty of advertisers. I think most companies, it seems like, advertise with pink bike this day, these days. Um, so that's just how it goes. But again, we try to be super transparent and unbiased and whatever clothing we're wearing is not going to affect our opinions on the bike that we're riding. There was another good behind the scenes question here, Kaz from inertia man. He says PB tech editor job requirements. Number one must be between five foot 10 and five foot 11. Alicia just, just touched on something there with the helmet fitting her. Well, that kind of reminded me of this. Can you, can you explain why we're all somewhere roughly around the same height? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't on purpose, but it does make it a lot easier. I, I'm not sure it's actually legal to say you can only hire people that are between 5'10 <laughs> and 5'11. <laughs> uh, that's not how it worked out, but it just happened that that we all kind of fall on the size, which does make it so much easier because otherwise we'd have to request two different 
bikes for a lot of these categories and just it's hard enough to get one bike so getting two bikes would be almost impossible so um yeah it helps that we all do ride size large or size medium in some cases and um yeah that's just how it goes and i know we've had people ask how come we're all not 250 pounds we did eat a lot of food and we're going to try to keep eating more food to get to 250 but there's a lot of work to do there so yeah we end up got a bunch of kind of tall skinnier people testing these bikes at field test these guys pretty much against my will made me eat lucky charms for the first time i was came back from riding and i was already i was really you know when you just you have a massive appetite and you're so hungry from riding all day and i got down these lucky charms my headache hurt my head was so bad i had to go lie down in a darkened room the next day i had a hangover from all this sugar my system doing the efficiency test which took like hours and hours and yes yeah, so i mean we're trying to get to that 250 sweet spot don't get me wrong yeah yeah, we exposed Henry to the magic of uh, sugar cereal. He didn't. He never had Fruit Loops before or Lucky Charms. Fruit Loops so. or Pop Tarts. Yeah. I don't think Fruit Fruit Loops taste a bit like soap. I don't get it. Oh, they're so good. Pop Tarts are delicious. It, clean, it cleans you out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Um. Yeah. I've never known such such delights. Lucky Charms were just like the way they're like they're so sugary. They're like great on your teeth. You know, it's yeah, like almost like polystyrene. It. Yeah. Like, oh, uh, are you fuzzy sweaters on there? Are you stuck mm. on them? Have you? Did you come back from field tests and you've just been no, stuck on a sugar no, high? Honestly, man, I'm never. There were. I don't know what made left a, a stronger impression on me of never again: the mushrooms or Lucky Charms. <laughs> you could mix them into one bowl of cereal, and you could just see how yeah. that goes. <laughs> It'd be real fun. Not mutually exclusive. No. no. <laughs> so moving on a bit. Yeah, I have another question for you guys. Again, sort of about behind the scenes, Dave MK wants to know what no benchmark bikes from the previous field test winners. I really need to know how the downcountry bikes compare to the transition spur and the trail bikes to the stumpy Evo Carbon. It's not like those bikes had any supply chain issues in the last year. All of us pinkers had ample opportunities to demo buy one, he says sarcastically. I'd like to point out that he acknowledges their supply chain issues. Just saying we're people too, we face similar issues. Yeah, it would have been it would have been nice to have a couple of those bikes there for sure. I think for this particular field test, we were pretty tight with time. Uh, we were tight with weather. The weather was super nasty a lot of the time. It made filming pretty difficult. But yeah, in a perfect world, we would have some control bikes, preferably from from previous field tests. And I think we we have done that in the past, but it did not work out for this one, unfortunately. But that's why we do this podcast, and that's why we make that comparison to the spur that we just did. Right. Yeah. And we also, he wants to have the Stumpy Evo Carbon in there. That's one of the reasons we brought in the uh, the Aluminum Stumpy, because that bike is, we gave it Bike of the Year last year, so we want to see how the Aluminum version would stack up, and then that one gets compared to the other ones. Um, so, yeah, we, we try. But, you know, if you want to know specific comparisons, like a few people did, just ask us, and we'll try to get them into the mix. Uh, let's move on. Oh, another one that always comes up every single field test, almost every review. I don't know why I ever think there might be an evil in one of these offering would have great to see in the trail category. <laughs> it would have been. It would have been great. Oh, shit, They're I left right the evil at my house, didn't I? Oh, <laughs> I left it. Oh, no. I just realized it's it's in my living room. <laughs> we just Sorry, forgot. I've dropped, I've dropped oh. the ball. I've dropped the ball. Uh, I've dropped, I feel, uh, I'm embarrassed, uh, actually. Yeah. <laughs> What is, yeah, I mean, what is the story there, Kaz? <laughs> There's no story. They just don't ever have bikes for us. I ask them all the time. I mean, the last four years, I've sent a good number of emails like, hey, do you have a bike available? And they say no. 
So they're supply chain, I guess. Here's the inside scoop for a lot of keen pinkers out there. The reason outside bought pink bike was so we can get evil through the back door at beta this is the whole master plan <laughs> now they can request one and send it to us exactly. and then you know everyone's going to be happy right i think so we have found the loophole we've got palmer and so now i can go through palmer he's going to be the middleman and he'll get an evil and i can get it from him and then we can review him so i think it's going to all work out from have you tried like the mustache and glasses sort of homer simpson way uh just going to evil straight on Kaz I just turn it up to their that. showroom yeah oh I'm I'm from a drink bike uh. <laughs> <laughs> so we're still working on it but uh, maybe one of these days let's see oh yeah here we go it's another one back to the kind of what we were talking about somebody wants real world conditions for test riders and he called us stick boys like Mike and Mike and uh, yeah I mean it's something that again you can't hire somebody based on their weight or height so it can't be like hey we need this person to be this this size and you can't force somebody to be a size like we obviously none of us are huge but none of us like we all ride hard we also have jason lucas for the huck to flat so you can take all your pseudoscience from the huck to flat and watch that he's not a stick boy i'd say i'm also not a stick boy just gonna put that no, one you're out not there. a stick boy either yeah, yeah none of that's us also <laughs> worth mentioning yeah noting <laughs> to, to be fair though i mean if we did have somebody that weighed 250 pounds just doing laps on these bikes I mean, and then something breaks, like something is more likely to break. You could make the argument that something would be more likely to break under someone who weighs 250 pounds instead of under us who weigh like 150, 160 pounds. But how realistic? I, 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 I don't know, Cass. <laughs> yeah, there's no and there's no winning because if we had if we ended up, say, all of us got let go tomorrow for making fun of something too much and they brought they replaced us all with 250 pound riders all the 160 pound riders would be like hey everybody that's on your team is too big this doesn't make sense where are all the stick boys so yeah it's like he has a point though yeah i get he it does have a point it's fine we actually do have an article i think in the works from someone that's not that small that breaks a lot of parts so there's a pretty good article about this stuff and what it's like to kind of deal with the annoyances that come with being hard on parts so that's coming how about this one from kango Funny how a 150 mil rear and a 160 mil front is considered a trail bike now. What do you guys think about our kind of shifting categories? He forgot the key word, aggressive. Aggressive trail <laughs> yeah, bike. Yeah, these are aggressive trail bikes. It's, the, it's big bike, isn't it? Big, big bike. bike are trying to change the known facts. You know, you know what it actually man. is? It's bikes that pedal better. It's steeper seat tube angles. Um... All those things. It's basically just like the longer travel bikes are just getting crazy versatile. So people are just able to ride them way more places. I say the same thing. I moan all the time. The fuck is a trail bike on 150 mils of travel? That's not a trail bike. But nowadays, that's. I feel like the bikes are becoming so capable and so versatile that they can be. That's what we're seeing. Would you agree? Yeah. And you also have enduro bikes now that have even more travel and are like exactly downhill bike geometry. So I think you have to you have a split in there. But again, just... People don't need to get too hung up on the categories, figure out what you need. And we'd make categories just to help help out, but sometimes they can just make things confusing and make people get mad if we put one bike in a category they don't think it belongs in. But again, the reason we'll talk, we'll have a whole nother podcast about the uh, aggressive trail category, but the reason that some Chamber Evo was in there was again, just to have a, a bike that we're familiar with and see how it stacks up against the other ones. Um, I think we'll finish off, let's see, with Frank26522. He, was gonna, he wanted to complain that 
we didn't include an IBIS. He says we did a huge disservice. Uh, I disagree. We've had IBIS on lots of field tests. Again, supply chain and also bikes have to be new or we try to focus on bikes that are new for this season. So IBIS didn't make it this time around, but we'll have plenty of IBISs in the future. So obviously we can't include every single bike. We try to do what we can, limited time, resources, all that. We don't want to make excuses, but uh, I think the crop that we got for this this time around is pretty cool. People are crazy. We did them a huge disservice. Like that seems like I, it seems excessive. It's, it's no disservice. What like you, it's just, what are you doing? I know. So there Frank, are a lot get of bikes out Frank. there. Seriously, there are so many bike Frank, brands out log there. Log off and don't come back. <laughs> I, the thing is, so Ibis's Ibis's newest bike wasn't it the the Ripley AF? We just tested it in the last value field test. So there you go, Frank. 26522 when you come back from your 10 year long ban that I'm about to <laughs> initiate you could come back and read that review there'd probably be a lot of you Ibis stick around Frank I'll ban you can kind of catch yeah. up rough morning <laughs> <laughs> Levy needs his lucky charms <laughs> I haven't had a monster yet <laughs> yeah so it sounds like the bikes worked fairly well for you guys but were there any major mechanicals during the field test uh we did have some bushing play. We had two SIDs in the field test. Both of them had bushing play, which is definitely a bummer because that fork, when it doesn't have bushing play, that fork is really impressive. But yeah, it just feels like a rattly loose headset. Henry, did we did we have any flat tires on those Schwalbies? Yes, one, but it was you? definitely my fault. Okay. So it's okay. It was landing into rocks and I was basically, I braked a bit in the air. So as I, like, you know, when you just start to feather it in anticipation because it's going straight into a tight right turn. And then obviously it sealed because it was tubeless, said nobody ever. So we had to get a tube. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this slice, though, to be, to be fair to the sealant, this slice was at least two millimeters. I mean, there's nothing it could have done. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> did did all of our seat posts and brakes work, work okay, Henry? I think everything worked fine. Oh, oh the Lev, KS Lev seat post on the Niner stuttered and fluttered a bit Mm -hmm. there was the drop chains on the giant thanks potentially to the mixture of praxis praxis crank with kmc chain for some reason it just didn't didn't mate up that well there was the organic pads in the trek which i pretty much took as an attempt on my life um with the 160 mil rotor in the back um and that's the thing that i found quite funny actually sorry just to just to go back into it you know these bikes are doing so much to make their their geometry more capable you know all these cool forks with these amazing dampers and this that and the other and they put organic pads in it it's just like give us give it a rest mate I like know. come on that's a fight and i've been battling that <laughs> or i've been fighting that fight for so many years if everyone could just stop making organic pads please they're not any noise like the metallic isn't that much noisier ever so i would like metallic everywhere on that trek i i did take the trek down a trail that was out of the down country realm and used the brakes. I might've used all the brake pads on that trail, but a 180 rotor would have been nice to see on that. Again, it's, we kind of talk about how these bikes, what they're for, you know, how beefed up they need to get before they start becoming not down country bikes. And it's a tricky thing, but I think a 180 rotor is appropriate. I mean, I think that for me, I know always going about it, but like the Santa Cruz, for instance, it came with the small brakes, those levels, but at least it came with 180 mil rotors front and rear. Like the Trek came with a 160 mil rotor, but with four pot rotor, four pot calipers, which seems to me slightly counterintuitive. And then you go and throw the soft organic pads in there, and it's just like, come on, guys, come on, come on. So, you guys are talking a lot about how these downcountry bikes descend. 
And we said earlier that they're not really made to be equally good on the uphill and the downhill. At least that's how I feel about downcountry. Are you being too harsh? Do you think you shouldn't judge them by how they descend quite so much? I mean, I think it it totally depends on the bike. And I think that we have to have the knowledge and the tact to look at these bikes and be like, well, obviously Santa Cruz doesn't, they didn't set out trying to make the blur as capable as the element on the descent. It's not fair to judge these things um, straight against each other sometimes when they have very different intentions. Yeah. I mean, speaking as someone who doesn't have much tact, I'd, uh, I'd like to be represented here. You know, I think a lot of it depends where, where you ride these bikes. I think if we'd done it in Squamish, I think that'd be a very fair thing to level because none of these bikes are going to, in my mind, probably thrive here in the way they did on those in my mind, like great cross-country trails that we had in Pemberton. I think everything here is just a bit more aggro. So I think that'd be a really fair thing to level. But we really chose trails that were swell-suited in this bike's remit. And so it kind of comes back into it a bit. If they don't descend well on these trails, then where are they going to descend well? Yeah, but that trail, like say whatever trail it is, the bike, like the element, it's still made to descend better. So it's still easier to go faster down this trail that's just fine for the canyon and the blur as well yeah the rocky mountain can be ridden faster down it with less effort but i would still argue that the blur and the canyon they don't get a free pass but like they didn't they didn't get designed to do that in the same way you know and i I think as long as we can communicate that in these reviews which i think we've done I think we've got that message out. As long as we can communicate that fact, I think that's fine. But if our review, if the descending section of the blur review said, this thing sucks because the Rocky is way easier to ride and could do more stuff. Well, no, that's not fair at all. But that's not what the reviews were, hopefully. It seems really important to compare the actual result of the bike to just what it was designed for. So it seems like the all important bike reviewing phrase is for what it is. It can descend well for what it is. That doesn't mean it. Yeah, exactly. Like at the start of this, we talked about how important back-to-back testing was. And now here I am saying, well, the blur isn't the same kind of bike as the element. But still, that back-to-back testing, it sort of underlines those different traits. It brings those out. It highlights them. And there, yeah, there are times when obviously, like if you're riding the blur right after the element, well, it's not going to feel quite as as sure-footed when it's rowdy. Yeah, and that's fine. Let's round this out by going into what our ideal downcountry bike would look like. It is kind of a made-up category, and I think we all have different opinions. But what, looking down the road a bit, say another season or two, I think this category will kind of evolve even further. But what, if you're designing a bike right now, what's the ideal downcountry bike kind of constitute? I'll start with you, Levy. Oh, I mean, it's an XC bike. That's all it is. It's just an XC bike that's not trying to kill you. I feel like these other bikes with with more travel and like crazy slack angles and and they're amazing they're absolutely amazing but of course they're better in my mind a downcountry bike it's that freaking santa cruz blur tr like it's a real xc bike i would want to do an xc race on it but at the same time it's just not trying to kill me and maybe that's because it has a long travel dropper post maybe it is still steep but maybe it's got a Maybe it's got a 40 degree or 40 millimeter stem on it. I don't know. Or better, a better front tire that's not trying to kill me, but it's still an XC bike. Downcountry XC bikes that don't want to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> How about for you, Henry? You have a little bit different take. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you probably touched on it earlier on when you what you said about the change in the head angle. So for me, I think it would be the spire with a 120 mil fork and bring it into down country, <laughs> down country territory. That makes sense, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> no, I, think, I think honestly, you know, I've gone through. So at, at, at Pemberton when we were there, I said that the trek was my favourite of the bunch. Coming back to Squamish, and I think it would be the element here, but anywhere yeah. else, it would probably be the trek. Yeah, okay. Um, it's got, it's got to. It's not as simple as just putting on. I think if the Trek came with ten mil less reach, it would be for me, and it would fit me better. Not necessarily a better bike, but it would fit me better. And I think um, I, I don't want something that's super high on the front end if I'm riding trails that aren't that aggressive. I do, I do think it's a cool category that, as much fun as it is to poke fun at it, it's a. I mean, a lot of these bikes suit the rides that a lot of us like to do. Just those kind of long big goof off rides that aren't insanely gnarly but aren't really that easy either and so yeah for me i kind of like the way that like the elements go and the spur that we mentioned before those bikes that you know are a little geared towards the downs but they are light they're not bikes that you you shouldn't be putting downhill casing tires on them and like going over forking them like you keep them in that nice travel bracket so they still kind of keep that liveliness but then they can handle uh, more than you expect for these shorter travel bikes but yeah all right, folks, that is it for our Downcountry Field Test wrap-up podcast. There are still a ton more videos to come out from the trail bikes that Casimir and Alicia tested. So make sure to watch those videos on the homepage as they are released, I think, starting next week. So if you liked what you heard today, I'm going to ask you guys to give it a share and a good rating on whenever you use to listen to us argue about bikes on. And lastly, it doesn't really matter what we call these short travel bikes that can do so much. Forget the dumb name. Are you tempted to ditch your long travel bike for one of these downcountry things? Maybe you already have. I don't know. Let us know in the comments what you guys think of all these new short travel bikes and put your questions in there for us to answer. We'll see you next week. Bye.